Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It is my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. And we have been working our way through a series on the Gospel of John. And this morning, we come to a wonderful passage and one that I think has been very important in many of our lives, in mine especially. I've just got to preface this by saying all week as I've prepared this sermon, the Lord was pounding away at my heart because this is a passage that is relevant to shepherds and also to under-shepherds. So because that describes the role I play as a pastor, in fact, the word pastor and shepherd are really the same word, the Lord has been just pounding away at me with ideas and thoughts, convictions about what it means to be a shepherd leader. But then I realize I'm going to preach to a congregation, 99% of whom are not pastors, and where is the relevance going to be? And so I've really struggled to try to um, hear what God's saying to me and also hear what he's trying to say to everyone else. Hopefully, we'll, I'll succeed. We'll see. But I hope that you will understand that this passage has done a very important work in me first. Uh, and I feel encouraged, corrected, chastened, rebuked, all of it. By what God has said. I want to start by just reading the passage for you. And again, I thank you, Pastor Jared, for acknowledging it. I, I want to really say thank you to the trailer team and the setup team. I don't know if you enjoyed getting out of bed at minus 10 this morning, but imagine spending the first hour of that day outside with a car that won't start and all of that. And just amazing to watch this team's dedication. It really moved me. Uh, I rolled up just in time to see them pull away from the ministry center. So I helped by staring, um, but just really grateful. And for the way I see our whole church rally together at times like that, it really encourages me a great deal. I want to read for you John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. That's a text for this morning. It says, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. I love this about Jesus. Even when his enemies are confused, he's gracious. And therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. I'm sorry. I am the gate. 
Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. And the man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. In preparing the series on the Gospel of John, I had to make a tough choice. I could go deep and granular and spend six years on the series, or I could give you a 50,000-foot view and choose specific things in each text, knowing that each Sunday there's no way to do justice to all the things that God is saying in each passage. Today we're looking at 18 verses, 18 of the most pregnant, rich, dense truth-filled verses in all of Scripture. And I've got about a half hour to talk about it. So obviously, there's going to be some editorial choosing going on this morning. I want to look specifically at a few um, elements of this passage. And the truth is, if it weren't for Psalm 23 or the Christmas nativity scenes that you see, most of us today in modern America would probably never think about shepherds. When's the last time you, you, your car stopped on the road because a flock of sheep was crossing, like happens in Ireland all the time? When's the last time that happened to any of us who live in Chicagoland? And so the truth is, we don't think much about shepherding, but the Bible is filled with very rich imagery of sheep and flocks and shepherds. It's as if something about that whole part of human life reveals a very important thing about the heart of God. In fact, the three fathers of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were all shepherds. Two of the greatest leaders of Israel, Moses and King David, were shepherds. God himself is depicted as the shepherd of Israel, and they are his flock. Something about the act of shepherding not only prepares a person for leadership, but reveals something about the heart of God. So it's not surprising then that when we get to the Gospels in the New Testament, Jesus picks up that imagery, and in fact he says of himself, I am the good shepherd. Paul later on also picks up that image, and he says anybody who serves as a pastor is a shepherd of God's people under the authority of the good, great shepherd, Jesus Christ. So let me tell you just a little word about the rhythms, the daily rhythms of a shepherd's life. 
Each morning, the shepherd would bring his sheep out to the pasture, and the whole task of every day is to find good food and stay alive while you eat it. That's pretty much a sheep's job description. Find good food and stay alive eating it. And a shepherd's job is to help that sheep get its job done. So every morning, that's what they would do. The shepherd would lead the flock out, and they would find good grass. And, you know, the thing is, once you've munched on one field, you can't keep munching on that same field. You've got to give the grass a chance to grow. So he would know all the good spots, and he would know what time to get there before everybody else brought their flocks. And so that was the way it worked. And while the, the sheep were happily munching away on their grass, the shepherd would watch over the flock. He would scan the horizon. He would look into the, the trees and the bushes and make sure that nothing that was dangerous was threatening his flock. And then at the end of the day, if all went well, he would make sure he had all his sheep with him, and he would lead them back to the village. And usually in most villages, there was a communal pen where lots of people kept their sheep. And so they would all go straight in. And the thing about these sheep pens was there was only one way in and one way out. That's good security, because if you, if you want to make sure you can keep track of inventory, you don't want 30 entrances and 30 exits. That's impossible to secure. So there's one way in, one way out, and every day that's what would happen. They would bring their sheep in, go inside, and then they would lock the door, and someone would watch that door, because thieving of sheep was a huge problem. Now, Western shepherds, if you see pictures in Ireland and throughout Europe and and North America where shepherding still happens, Western shepherds, by and large, drive their sheep from behind. They use prods, they use horses, they use dogs, and they stand behind the flock and they drive them forward. That, in a way, says something about the Western mindset of leading, is I'm going to push you and you're going to move. But... Those in Palestine, in the ancient Near East, the way they did it and the way they still do it throughout that region of the world today is they stand in front of their sheep and they speak constantly and the sheep recognize the sound of their shepherd's voice and they just follow. That to me is a much more beautiful and compelling picture of leadership. It's someone whose voice is so known and trusted that all they need to do is stand in front and speak And those who follow are drawn to that voice, and they walk together. No sticks are needed, no dogs barking, no perch atop a high horse, just the sound of your voice. There's a great deal to be learned in this passage about the way shepherd leaders lead their people and the way Jesus, then, is the greatest leader we know. During the years that I studied Uh, in my doctoral program out in Gordon-Conwell in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm not doing that anymore. After years of trying to finish this degree, I realized I don't want it, and I quit. I hate quitting, but I quit. And uh, during those years, one of my highlights was meeting and studying under this man. The man sitting down writing notes, his name is Dr. Timothy Laniak. I love the word laniac because if I were in high school and playing sports, I would want to be called Laniac the Maniac. It's an awesome name. 
And he, he spent a year, after he finished his, his own doctoral studies at Harvard Divinity School, he went on to the Albright Institute for Archaeological Research in Jerusalem. And he spent a year there as an annual professor. And during that year in Jerusalem, he spent the whole year studying this idea of shepherd leadership because it was such rich imagery in the Bible. And the way he studied was not by burying his head in books. He went out and lived among the Bedouin tribesmen who were shepherds to this day. And he lived among them in their tents, packed up, walked with them. And for months, he interviewed them. He watched their lives. He studied what it meant to be a shepherd over sheep and goats. And the result of that year of living among the Bedouin was a wealth, a depth of knowledge about what it means to be a shepherd. And he wrote a scholarly book, but he also wrote a 40-day devotional that really rocked me when I went through it. In fact, Dr. Laniak is the one who gave me this. He gave me this shepherd's crook that he bent himself, made using ancient techniques. And this hangs on the coat rack in my office. And every day when I hang up my jacket, I see this. And it is for me a visual reminder of what it is I'm called to. I love this thing. I I like physical objects that are tied to a memory. And this thing is one of my favorite objects. And I thought, surely i got to bring it up for the one sermon I'm going to preach. I'm being a shepherd. I just wanted to see that because it's such an important visual cue for me. During that year, one of the things that routinely surprised Dr. Laniak was how the sheep and the shepherd recognized one another's voices. At first, he thought the Bedouins were pulling his leg, like putting him on, think, thinking, here's this, here's this uh, white American. Let's trick him. Let's make him think that we could actually hear individual sheep's voices and that they could recognize our voice. The crazy thing is you can go into the middle of a crowded village in the communal pen and there's five or six flocks, maybe a 1,500 sheep all crowded around and a shepherd will go, hold on, Blossom is not happy right now. And he's like, come on, man. No, I'm serious. My sheep Blossom is in trouble right now. I could hear it. It's much like the way a mom in a crowded noisy room goes, I'm sorry, hang on. Yeah, that's my kid. How can you hear your, there's like a 1,000 babies crying. I know, but my kid has this very distinctive cry. It's that kind of recognition, intimate, aware, knowledgeable, personal. And what he was astounded by was how specific that recognition was in both directions. He would listen to one of the the Bedouin tribesmen shout out an order to the sheep, and they would respond. And he's pretty good at imitating voices. He would try to do it exactly the way they got that, that that guy did it, and the sheep would look agitated and nervous. They know the difference between their shepherd's voice and an imitator of their shepherd's voice. It's that specific. And what's even crazier, and if you look at this passage, it shows you that shepherding has hardly changed in thousands of years, was that every shepherd gave a name to every sheep. That name was often rooted to something important, like what kind of weather or circumstances that sheep was born in, something significant that happened when it was a baby, and each one had a name. And the shepherd could distinguish between all these sheep. I, I look at pictures of flocks of sheep. I'm like, there's no way. You know, I see twins. I have, I have uh, in-laws, two twin boys. To this day, they're like teenagers. I still have a hard time telling them apart. I'm like, which one are you again? I have to figure out which distinguishing mark for human beings I see all the time. These guys can pick out a sheep from among a hundred other sheep that look virtually identical. 
This reveals something to us because of all the words which God could have used to describe who he is to us. He uses this powerful word, shepherd, and he calls out this very specific thing because he's saying to us, when God looks at the world, when he looks out at humanity, when he looks at you, what he never sees is just a nameless face. I know that's how it feels sometimes to be us. I struggle with that because I was never really one of the insiders uh, in the the spiritual elite in the the group that I was growing up in. Um, There was a certain cluster of people who were inside. And then I was always the guy who was a little bit naughty. Um, And so for some reason, it it was really hard to break into that circle. And there are times when I felt kind of like I was marginalized or invisible. And I know some of us have struggled a great deal with that feeling of, do I matter? Does, am I even really here? See, what, what I think Jesus is trying to say is when he looks at the world, he never sees the people. He sees people. Every individual is recognized. I, I look at sheep and I see sheep. I couldn't conceive of a point in my life where I could tell one sheep from the other unless one sheep was clearly like all one color and the other sheep was all clearly the other color. Other than that, they're just sheep. It's not worth the trouble for me to distinguish between one from the next. But the heart of God is that when he looks at humanity, he sees people. He sees them name by name. And that was the crazy thing about ancient shepherds and even shepherds to this day is they will stand outside the sheep pen and they will start calling out their sheep one by one. And as they say the name, the sheep come out to them. They recognize that they're seen and known personally. And they respond. The reason this is such an important teaching, we have to remember the setting. Jesus isn't preaching on a hillside to people. He's preaching directly in rebuke of the religious leaders of his day. This was a sermonette delivered not to the people at large, but directly into the faces of the Pharisees with whom Jesus was so disappointed. There were a lot of people in the crowd that were listening in, eavesdropping, watching the Pharisees get their butts handed to them. You know how it is. Like when you see two guys dueling it out and everyone else is like, ooh, oh, dang. It was that kind of argument. And Jesus was delivering this scathing rebuke to the Pharisees. Because in the last passage, if you remember two weeks ago, he had just healed a man who had spent his entire life being blind. This affliction that had marked and defined his whole life. And in compassion, Jesus sees this man, his story, and he touches him and he heals him. And he invites this man to come and follow and worship him. In the meantime, the religious leaders, seeing this miracle, this undeniable miracle, refuse to believe it. Continue to openly reject Jesus as not being from God. And when this poor man, who had lived his whole life afflicted, was finally able to see, they did not celebrate with him, but they rebuked him. They said, you're a sinner. You were born in sin. You deserve the affliction you had. That was on you, and now you're adding to your sin by following this imposter. They excommunicated him. They kicked him out of the only social construct he had available to him, and they made him a pariah, an outsider. The contrast between the way Jesus treated this man and the way the religious leaders treated this man could not be more stark. 
Jesus showed compassion and showed that he saw an individual person. These religious leaders just saw rabble. They saw faces in a crowd. They saw reputations and they saw their system being threatened. And so he's delivering this rebuke to the religious leaders of his day, and he's so disappointed with them, which is why he's saying, there is a difference between good shepherds and bad shepherds. It's almost as stark as if he's saying, I'm a good shepherd. Those guys are bad shepherds. There's a good kind of leadership and a bad kind of leadership. Can we say amen to that? In our day and age, that's the story everywhere. We are being scarred deeply every day by stories of poor leadership in every sector of our life. Some of us came under horrible leadership from the day we were born, born to a mother or father who struggled to get it right, were living steeped in their own pain and incompleteness, and their authority over us scarred us deeply. It marked us. Bad leadership has huge consequences over the lives of other people. And good leadership has amazing consequences in the life of those who are led. So the Pharisees had kicked this man out, and Jesus had picked him up. And it was illustrative of something Jesus is doing, that out of this whole flock called Judaism, Jesus was calling out another flock that belonged just to him. I I think here's what, what I'm trying to say. Every one of us has a flock we belong to, one into which we were born. Every one of us has a tribe that was our starting point. It begins with where you were born, to which family. How many of you, all right, let's not do the show of hands, but if I were to ask you, you would raise your hand. How many of you are happy, so happy about the family you were born into? Like, yes, I've won the family lottery. And how many of you would be like, yeah, if I could have picked a different family, I probably would have. How many of you would have picked the ethnicity you were born with? For years, I regretted my ethnicity because I was the only one with it in my surroundings. I know that my kids go through some of that. How many of you would have picked your gender, your physical form, your height, your whatever, your shape? And I think every one of us, just by an accident of birth, is born into a flock, into a tribe that defines how we see ourselves, who we believe we belong to, in fact, who we are. And long before you ever hear the name of Jesus or become aware of God, you already belong to something. If you're a teenager, you're probably desperately trying to figure out which tribe is yours. I remember those years. Back in the days, there wasn't all this language of tolerance or anti-bullying. Back in our day... Bullying was just everywhere. Nobody even said it was bad. It was just how you decided who was the winners and who were the losers. I remember being in the high school cafeteria going, which tribe am I going to sit with? And it was as if there was a map. The burnouts, the nerds, the jocks, the the drama people, the goths, whatever. It was as if it was like there was, you know, this diagram like on risk with different colors and borders and everything. And it's like you're trying to figure out which one of these groups am I? To whom do I belong? And that's the struggle of the human condition is that you're born into a tribe and you can either embrace it or trade in for another one. But everyone needs to belong somewhere and we all begin somewhere. What is your flock? What is your starting point, your tribe? 
And from that, whatever defined how you see yourself or who you believe you are, out of all those disparate various tribes and flocks in the world, what Jesus says is, I'm calling out to people by name, one life at a time, and as they respond and hear my voice, I am cobbling together a new flock out of the many, under one new shepherd. He intends to be that shepherd, and this new flock, regardless of what the original starting point was, is a flock drawn together not because of our birth, not because of our affinity or our interests or our passions or our looks. It's, a, it's not even based on the blood that flows in our veins, but the blood that flows over us, shed by Jesus himself. He is knitting together a new flock out of the many, and he is the one legitimate good shepherd over this flock. That means no matter how crazy your starting point was, how unusual, even if you belong to a flock of one, like there's nobody with me. There's no one like me. I've got a story so nuts, I don't think I'll find another human being in all my days who goes, I get you. Most people look at me and go, what are you? Even then, even then, there is a second chance at belonging. One that runs much deeper than every other belonging you've ever experienced. And that's the invitation of Jesus when he says, I am the good shepherd, and like a good shepherd, I call out in front of this pen where so many flocks are gathered, and those who hear and recognize my voice are drawn to me, and those who respond, I will form from them a new flock, one that belongs only to me. What I love about that is he doesn't just broadcast the message for all. He calls out by name. Here's what I mean practically by that. I can preach the gospel in a general sense every Sunday from this pulpit. They could be true words broadcast with passion to every person in this room and like somebody throwing out a net to catch fish. You know, like a hook is a very specific sniper rifle of a fishing weapon. You've got to catch one fish in that whole ocean. You throw it in and get that one guy. A net is more like a shotgun. Anything that swims into the general vicinity, you're going to catch it. And that's the way we could think about preaching the gospel is I could cast a wide net Scatter out and go, please hear the invitation of Jesus. Respond to him today if you hear. But here's the beautiful thing about while I'm fishing with a net, Jesus is fishing with a hook. In the hearing of that general message, as the words become intelligible to you, as you hear the sounds coming out of the mouth of the preacher, some other voice is speaking to some in the room. And that voice isn't speaking in a general sense, but he's speaking to individuals by their name. He's calling out. And I experienced this. I've shared this with you before. In the August of 1984, after a hundred times hearing the message of how salvation works, hearing stories about Jesus, watching flannel graphs and all the Bible stories, on that day of all days, I heard for the first time. I had heard many times. But that day, it was as if I heard while I was listening, my name was called. Something inside of me opened involuntarily as I heard the message. And I felt myself being drawn to that voice and opening up. And I was his forever after that. That happened one time in my life, and it changed everything. I had heard men fish with nets all my life. But there was a day... When Jesus, the heavenly sniper, sighted me, and boom, headshot, one shot, one kill, I was done. 
boom. It was like, wow, I, I see you now. How many times married men, okay, married men, or men with girlfriends, has that woman said to you, uh, did you remember that? No, what are you talking about? Well, I told you. No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. I don't know why it's our instinct to go, no, you didn't tell me. How prideful are we? How obstinate? Of course she told you. You know what the problem was? Not that she didn't tell you. You aren't listening. Jeannie, do I do this to you sometimes? Yeah, I do. I do this to her probably three, four times a day. I have this bad habit of just going, yes, yes. Uh-huh, sure. And here's the thing. She's talking, but I'm not always listening. And yet my defensive heart wants to say, it's your fault. You didn't ever speak to me. I realize that I can't make Jesus call my name. I can't make him talk to me. But I know in faith that he does. And he will. Sooner or later, he will call out my name. And he will call out your name. I can't control that in my life or in the lives of people I care about. And there are many people I deeply love who don't know Jesus. I care about that. But I have no control over when Jesus decides to speak their name. Here's the one thing we do have control over. We can listen. Just like I do to my wife all the time where my ears are working, but my brain is done. There's a way to hear and not really listen. There's a way for this organ to work, but nothing is really entering my life. So I I ask you simply this. You can't always control when Jesus speaks your name, but you could be listening for it. Here's the other thing you can't control. You can put yourself in places and in situations where God does speak. I know that even if you get nothing out of the sermons and the service week after week, you, you are better off being here than not. Even though small group isn't always the thing that, that floats your boat, you're better off being there than not because one day, out of the blue, in the most unlikely circumstance, Jesus could talk to you in that place. It's the place where he's already ordained, I want to show up here. He said it himself with his own mouth. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there. So you can't always control how alive you feel inside or whether God speaks your name. But you can put yourself in those places consistently where he's promised to show up and be there. And very often, in the 11th hour of being there and getting so little out of it, his voice breaks through and you hear. That's my prayer for some of you who have grown up in church and yet never heard him say your name. Never felt like there was an internal, deep, irresistible pull, but just thoughts that were persuasive, truths that made sense, a way of living that seemed appealing to you, and you were drawn in general toward God, but you didn't hear the voice of a shepherd pull at your heart. I'm praying for you, and I want to ask you to pray for yourself that that would happen in your life. Jesus then, when the Pharisees still don't get what he's saying to them, switches the analogy a little bit and says, I'm not just the shepherd, but I'm the gate. And here's what he's really saying. The only way to join this flock 
is through him. And the only way to join that flock is to hear that voice and respond to him as your shepherd. I wondered why Western shepherds have to drive their sheep from behind and how it is that Eastern shepherds lead their flocks from in front. They just whisper, they talk in cooing voices, and the sheep follow them. I, I, I know for one reason is because they've learned to trust that that voice leads them to good grass. That's the voice of a provider. It's also the one around whom they're safest when they hear the growling of a wolf or they hear the thicket being trampled by a bear, they know, they've learned from past experience that it's always safer to be around that guy with that voice than out on the fringes of the flock by themselves. They look at their fellow sheep and go, dude, that's a bear. And the other sheep is like, what do you want me to do about it? I look like food to him just like you do. It's when that guy with that voice is around that this comes out too. This isn't meant for the sheep most of the time. It's meant for the wolves. And when he swings it, they stand behind him and they're protected. It's also the voice associated with when they step on a thorn or they stub their their toe or they break their leg and he carries them and puts oil on their wounds and he binds them up. If you are familiar with Psalm 23, there's this really beautiful progression you might not have caught right away. But if you look at Psalm 23, I'm sorry, let me get to that. There's this interesting thing in the first half of Psalm 23, it's all in the third person. It's about a guy describing God as a shepherd. He is like this. He is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. In other words, this is biographical. This is describing and talking about God, the shepherd. But then in the second half, an interesting shift happens. He switches to second person, and now he's no longer talking about God. He's talking to God, and he says to God, it's you. I will fear no evil, not because he is with us, but you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me. You anoint my head. It's your goodness and love that will follow me all the days of my life. I think that little shift in Psalm 23 is a beautiful picture of the progression of faith for every human being. It's how we all come to God. If you've grown up in the church, I bet you you could get at least a 1,200 on the religious SAT. Okay? I'll bet you most people who grew up in church and Sunday school could score at least a 30 on the ACT, the, a 1,200 on the SAT of Bible facts about God. Some of you have even memorized verses. But the key of knowing Jesus is not knowing about him, but knowing him. And it's that shift that takes place as he realizes, I am not just a sheep describing shepherds in general. I am a sheep who's describing my shepherd. And it's no longer about talking about God. It's about talking with God. That's an experience that marks a transition from being religious to entering into a relationship with him. That's the real reward of being a part of his flock. Is not simply that you're saved from eternal damnation but that you now enjoy life with a shepherd. 
There is this beautiful promise at the end of verse 10 that so many people have memorized. Each translation seems to have it a little differently. The NIV says, he has come so that we would have life and have it to the full. So that's, that's the NIV's translations. What he promises us as a member of his flock is a full life. The NLT says he wants to give us a rich and satisfying life. Almost every other translation says life and life that is abundant, an abundant life. So the, the promise that God is giving to those who belong to his flock is a life that is full, rich, satisfying, and abundant. That's not a life describing salvation from danger. You know, we say we're saved, so what? I didn't feel like I was threatened. It's not just about being safe. It's about having a life that feels like a real life, a life worth living. Here's a problem. A lot of people read that, and they say, well, that doesn't compare well to my experience. I did follow Jesus wanting a life that is rich and satisfying and full and abundant, but the life that I've lived since then has felt nothing like that. It's felt more empty, more like disappointment, hardship, struggle, obstacles, pain. The fullness, the abundance of life that Jesus is promising is not about our external circumstances. Don't don't get me wrong. It's not that he doesn't care at all about our circumstances. There's plenty of evidence. In fact, in just the last passage, he healed the man of his lifelong blindness. He cares about that stuff very deeply. But that isn't the arena in which he makes the promise, you will have a full, rich, satisfying, abundant life. When he says that to us, it's not about the stuff we'll have or the circumstances of our life. If it was about that, life would feel like a ripoff most days. What he's describing is a life where that could be true of us inside, no matter what is going on outside. And I know that sounds like a shadow of a good promise, like, hey, kids, I have a really big surprise for you. You know, you know like I, we said that because we, we bought a new kitchen table the other day. After 25 years of using the free table we got at AFC, when they were dumping their old tables, and finally, Jeannie's like, I think maybe it's time for a proper kitchen table. So we bought one. And for us, that's like a big deal because change doesn't happen that much in the house. So we told the kids, hey, we have a surprise for you. (laughs) Usually for kids, that means like we're going to Disney or you just bought me a new TV from my bedroom. But they came home and was like, oh, kitchen table. (laughs) Woohoo! So I know that's the way maybe it sounds. Is like, oh, he doesn't want to give you a rich, full life in the, the bank account or in the marriage altar, or in your job. He wants to give you a rich life in your heart. But I want you to think about your life story, your experiences. Because the truth is, there is a law of diminishing returns about pleasure, about good things. I've experienced that. I'm not a rich man, but I've experienced some great things in life. What I've noticed at the age of 51 is it takes way more for me to feel anything at all. It used to be when I stayed at the Motel 6 that I would move up to the Ramada. And I was like, dang, the Ramada's got going on. I remember the days when I thought Ramada was a, like a fancy place. I'm sorry if you own a Ramada, if your family owns a Ramada. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying I thought that was the pinnacle of hotel. And then I stayed at really, really nice resorts. And I was like, dang, this is living. But then the third, fourth, fifth time I stayed at a place like that, The wonder is gone. I'm like, what's next? 
I don't want to fly coach anymore. I want to try a, a private jet. And then after that, it's like, I don't want to charter anymore. I want to own that jet. I've been able to pick up the bathroom and go prepare the jet. That's what I want. And the, the further you go, the higher you get, the, the less you feel. It, there's this law of diminishing returns, a numbing effect, so that even if you get that rich, full, abundant life in everything outside, something dies every minute inside as you get all of that. That's why to say that's how I will know that Jesus kept his promise, that my life got better and better on the outside. If that's all you've got, God will be confusing. Your life will be a huge disappointment, and the world will soon quickly run out of wonders to capture your heart. You will have to do more intense things just to feel alive at all. Do you remember when a golf trip with your buddies used to get you excited? And I was just like, that's a golf trip with my buddies. I'm going to have fun. It's awesome. But I remember when I couldn't stop thinking about stuff like that for a month. Oh, I can't wait for that trip. Now it's like, shoot, I didn't even pack. What city are we going to again? What he says is there is a way to experience a growing, abundant fullness in your heart that has nothing to do with what's going on around you. If you've ever fallen in love, you know exactly what I'm describing. Young men falling in love are just idiots. <laughs> it doesn't matter what anything, because you just, it feels so good to know that that person loves you. And it's like, it doesn't matter if you get bad grades, if you don't get the job, you're like, I don't care right now. Because I remember feeling like that. The day we got married, I was making zero dollars a year. <clears throat> I mean, that's every Asian parent's dream for their daughter is that they would walk across the aisle with a man making a whopping zero dollars per annum. And yet, it didn't matter to me, because I looked at her, I thought, that's my wife. I don't care how much I earn. I had to care eventually, and we had to eat, but it's this weird bulletproofing, this kind of insulation that says, everything could be going to hell. And yet I feel like I'm in heaven. And when we look back over our lives, we won't remember the comforts and the luxuries and the heights of experience. What we'll remember is the feeling of being loved, of being accepted, of being known, of being cherished, and having someone that we could feel that way about as well. Those are the things we remember looking back. And when they don't happen, those are the things we mourn and grieve. Nobody said of an absent father, well, at least he gave me lots of money. I hardly knew him, but at least he gave me everything. That's not what we say. We grieve that he gave me so much luxury, and yet I never once spent an unbroken hour getting to know my father. The abundant life which Jesus promises us rises out of this individual, personal, life-giving relationship with him. So that even when everything is just falling apart, you still have the ability to feel okay, to experience joy in the presence of God. Jesus said it a little earlier in in John. In 738, he said, anyone who is saved, believes in me, will have a river of living water flowing out of them. 
He didn't say they will swim in a river of flowing living water. It wasn't water on the outside. It's flowing out of us. That's the rich promise. It's not that I'm waiting for something good to happen to me, but something really good is happening in me. Does that describe what it's like for you to know God today? Is there a peace that is resilient in the face of hardship? Is there a security that you can feel and hang on to even when the world is truly rejecting you? When you feel like everyone is pushing you outside, do you still know that you belong to someone and have an unshakable security in your heart? That's the promise that Jesus holds out. If you want good things, don't necessarily turn to Jesus. That's one lesson I've learned in life. If I need good health, good income, good looks, all of it, Jesus is not the place I'm going to get that stuff. He keeps going, I'm working on your heart, dummy. Get a, get a Harvard MBA. Apparently that leads to millions of dollars. If that's what you want, go to Harvard. Don't go to Jesus. But if you come to Jesus, know that what he's promising you is a rich, satisfying abundant life that wells up from inside of you so that even if you lose everything that you care about, there is still real joy, not fake joy, not acclaimed joy, but a real joy, a real life that beats inside of you. I'll close with this. Jesus says it a number of times in this passage. He says, I am the good shepherd. Because he's acknowledging that the men he's talking to are bad shepherds. They're thieves and robbers. Here's an interesting irony that Dr. Laniac pointed out in his devotional. He said the best sheep stealers are actually good shepherds. Not like good morally. They're just really good at working with and moving sheep. They know how to get sheep to do stuff. And that's one thing I've learned about bad leaders. The worst leaders still know how the human heart works. They know how to move groups of people. They know how to exercise influence, get what they want. They know how to manipulate. They know how to trick and deceive and fool and promise without delivering. They know how to do all that stuff. The worst and the most immoral leaders in our world are still very capable tacticians and leaders of men and women. That's what makes leadership so important. A good leader is not just someone who knows how to move people. A good leader is someone who moves people in good places. Whose interest is for the sheep, not for themselves. That's why he contrasts himself from the thief and the robber who are only using the people for their own ends. And he contrasts himself with those hired hands who are like, look, I just work here. Don't you hate that attitude when you're at a store and you're like, excuse me, um, I just bought this and this piece is missing. And they're like, what do you want me to do about it? I want you to do something, anything, just not what you just did. Don't dismiss my problem. Act like you care. Why should I? This is not my store. We have a department for that. I just work here. And he says that's the attitude of so many who are good at leading, who are authorized to lead, but should never lead anyone. Because when they lead, they break people. The reality of bad leadership is a reality of life. It's everywhere. 
And I'm not just talking about wicked or evil leadership, but inept leadership, unselfware leadership, leadership that arises from refusing to grow, from maintaining apathy and a judgmental spirit. And what Jesus says is those kinds of leaders are everywhere in your world. Don't pin your hopes to human leaders. Eventually, they will let you down. That's happening in church world. It's happening in government. Even the entertainers and the athletes we look up to fail on a regular basis. There's no sector of human life where if we look to people to give us hope, we won't be disappointed. But he says, not all is lost. There is a leader in this universe who is unfailingly good and can always be trusted. You have never known a leader like Jesus. You have never known a leader like him. He will never take from you more than he gives you. Who else do you know that's like that? Everyone wants something from you. But who do you know that will always give you more than he takes? He will never stop loving you no matter how ugly you try to be. No matter how unlovable you are being, he will not stop loving you. Even your own mother and father at some point will just finally go, all right, fine. If that's what you want to do with your life, throw it all away. I don't care. I've tried. I'm done. Even your own flesh and blood, mother and father, you can push them to a breaking point. I did to mine. Many times as a teenager. I've made my parents cry with frustration. And at some point, they just, they finally said, it's your life. Jesus will never do that to you. His mercies are new every morning. He doesn't get sick of your story. He doesn't roll his eyes behind your back. He doesn't throw you away because you won't change. He continues to pursue you. He'll never give up on you. Stop believing that you can have a purpose in your life. And when you're lost to him and far away, he will never stop pursuing you. Some of you are like me. When you lose something or your family member loses something in your house, that's the new quest for the Holy Grail and you won't rest till you find it. He's like that with people. He never stops looking for those who are lost to him. And when you're in pain, and your pain isn't the kind of pain that just gets dealt with in a conversation and whisked away and fixed. When your pain is for a lifetime, when your pain is chronic, when it's the burden of an entire lifetime of learning to cope with it and wrestle with it, chronic pain alienates you because it makes everybody else tired of this unchanging reality. I know it hurts. It's always hurt. What do you want us to do after a while? You get so weary of the pain of others when it doesn't change. And the person with that pain knows I've exhausted everyone around me. Even as I begin with, well, you know how it is. That's how I feel when I talk about my insomnia. Some of you out of just politeness go, are you sleeping better? I'm like, well, no. And they're like, and I can see it in your face. The, The man is just... He's sick when it comes to sleep. 
clearly he's making bad choices. He's got to stop with the screen time, whatever. I don't know, but I could tell in your eyes you don't want to hear me finish the sentence. You're being very polite. But when that same situation persists for 30 years, everyone else is sick of it. But never Jesus. You will never know anyone like him. He's the one with the smiling face who will tell me all over again. Tell me about that pain. I have healing for you. Come tell me again. Tell me what they did to you. Tell me again. He will never roll his eyes. He'll never judge you behind your back. Who else do you know that treats you this way? Because at the end of the day, no matter how hard-hearted, sarcastic, rebellious you may be acting, that's what your heart yearns for. That's all you really care about is, do I matter to anyone? Am I really loved? Am I really here? Am I valued? Does anybody care about me? You're looking around at the world and everybody's saying, no, the truth is we don't really care that much about you. You're not that important. I watched a YouTube video where this girl was on a vlog in a coffee shop and a man walked right up to him and goes, honey, you're not that interesting. You could see her face just shatter as she realized he's right. And yet Jesus says, no, no, you're really interesting to me. Do you know anyone else like that? Because while you're busy protecting yourself, you might be protecting yourself from the one person who actually cares like that for you. Maybe you hear him calling your name even now. Maybe just a whisper. Maybe that voice is starting to break through over the noise of everyone else's voice. Will you hear that voice and not brush it off? It might be the voice that saves your life. It might be the voice that changes everything for you. And it won't just be from a general sermon, but even as the words are being spoken, you will hear it in the depths of your heart. He will pull at you. If that's happening to you even a little today, let it happen hear him listen to what he's saying to you know this too I cannot promise you that if you follow Jesus things will get better for you at least not on the outside but I can promise you this rivers of living water will flow out of you there will be an abundance inside I don't know about you but That is one of the most compelling things that I can hear from God. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.